VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Right off the bat, big thanks to Brian Callahan for sitting in for me on Friday. Extra long weekend for yours truly. Brian did a great job, so really appreciate him taking the chair. And the warmest May 2-4 weekend in some 30 years, near record-setting temperatures, just a glorious weekend, just about right across the province. So how's your sunburn? You know full well there's some rosy cheeks out there today, even though it's enough to clip you cold here in town this morning. Okay, Newfoundland Growlers, ooh, dropped a pair to the Florida Everblades down at Mary Brown Center over the weekend. Lost in overtime on Friday night and lost two zip on Sunday night. They fall behind two love down to Florida to see if they can get back in it. And really great news and a welcome sight to see Alex Nook draw back into the Colorado Avalanche lineup. You know, when the team is smoking along like they are, it's hard to get out of the press box and back into the roster, but he's there. And he had a beautiful assist last night, so pleased for young Alex. And Joel Kratz from Labrador City. He was a member of Team Canada competing in the World Junior Curling Championships. What Team Purcell? I don't know if you pronounce it Purcell or Purcell. Around here it's generally Purcell. So Joel was the voice skip, and they won a bronze medal. Fantastic stuff for young Joel Kratz. Congratulations to him and the rest of the team. Canada members and sticking with the big land for a moment, uh, Camille Marcou. He's originally from Goose Bay. He played three years in the Maritime Junior League, played for the Kirkland Lake Gold Miners and the Campbellton Tigers. He's committed to fit, uh, continue his hockey career at West Virginia University. That's a Division One school in the NCAA, so he's a 5'10 hard-nosed centerman, apparently from Goose Bay. Good luck to you. Camille. All right. And the NL Rock, they are once again Atlantic Super League champions for the second year in a row. They defeated the Nova Scotia Celtics 25-24 at the Swatters Complex over the weekend. Congratulations to the Rock. What do I got here? Oh, yeah. I've been following along St. Peter's Pythons. They're playing volleyball in the national under-18s. Got off to a flying start on day number one. Beat teams from Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Didn't get yesterday's update yet, but they look like they're having a great time and certainly playing some top-quality volleyball in... Where are they? I think it's in Alberta. Anyway, we'll see if we can get the update on that front today. Just a quick note on... You know, this is minor and amateur sports, and this is something that's been happening for quite a long time. There's a major soccer tournament uh, scheduled for this summer, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Huge tourney, and they've canceled it. And why is they're having a hard time getting referees to come back in the fold or to add to the numbers? So it's the Gunn Balderson Memorial Tournament, named for an Acadia University student, standout soccer player, who died in a car accident back in 1987. They usually get hundreds of teams to compete in the Annapolis Valley in this massive tournament. But they can't get the refs. So with a little break during the pandemic, some of the young referees are saying it's been a welcomed feeling to not be yelled at by angry soccer parents. And it's not just soccer. This is across the board. You know, it really does strike me when you go to a minor sporting event. And, you know, sometimes we're talking about little kids, 9 and 10-year-olds. And some parents just get caught up in the emotion and living vicariously through their son or daughter and start bawling at the refs. So here's some numbers for context. 
The, they usually have roughly 400 qualified soccer refs and 100 trainees at the beginning of the soccer season. Now they only have 250 experienced referees in the fall. So just be mindful when you go to cheer on and support your young athlete or young person doing whatever. Just like, I suppose, no sense bawling at the judges at the Kiwanis Music Festival either. But that tournament had to be cancelled for that unfortunate reality that the young referees just say, eh, it's simply not worth it. And I completely get that. All right, let's move into some academic achievements. Three members of three people from this province, young people, were competing at the National Cow of the Canada Wide Science Fair at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton uh, just earlier in April. Three of them came home with medals. So Sophia Zhang, Alpita Patro, and Grace, uh, Grace Toglevina all earned bronze medals in the various categories. Zhang goes to St. Bonaventures, won a bronze in the junior division. Uh, Nanotechnology, a Sustainable Science Award for her project entitled Triboelectric Effect and Nano Generator. Okay. And young Patro uh, attends McDonald Drive Junior High, won a bronze in her junior division for a... I don't even know what this means. It's a future of biofuels anyway is the subtitle. And Tuglavina attends Lake Melville School, bronze in her uh, division, the domino effect, how ice patterns in the north have far-reaching consequences. Tuglavina is the first national winner from Labrador, so I wanted to get that in there. And, of course, today is the first day where the children and staff and students, staff administrators, in the K-12 system, back in school after the long weekend, and now masks no longer mandatory. Be curious to see what mask wearing looks like in schools as they get back at it. And I guess when you're in the uh, younger grades, in kindergarten, today in History Dave, Mary Had a Little Lamb was first published by Sarah Hale back in 1830. And of course, everybody knows Mary Had a Little Lamb. And the first Marx Brothers film featuring the Marx Brothers, The Coconuts, it debuted today in 1929. Now, it doesn't stand up to duck soup, but still a pretty good film. All right, let's get going. So we know when the province lifted the ban on wind, private companies getting in the wind generation business, that's been in place since 2007, all directly related to Muskrat Falls, of course. So the, you know, the thought was that there's proponents out there knocking on government's door, and now there's been one formal proposal brought forward, a man who's well-known in this neck of the woods, John Risley. So Chairman Chief Executive Officer at CFFI Ventures, and of course the former head of Clearwater Seafoods, He's got a plan with partners in the First Nations to actually acquire the Port of Stephenville, ship hydrogen created in the province from, to around the world. So wind can be used to create hydrogen through water electrolysis. And hydrogen will absolutely be one of the transition, quote-unquote, fuels that the world will be leaning on. That seems like a real big deal to acquire in full the port of Stephenville. The province doesn't have a whole lot to say about it, and certainly any opportunity to create some economic boon in one part of the province or another, most welcome. And we can indeed play an active role in this hydrogen game. Absolutely we can. So does the province play a role? Is the province getting involved? Because, I, you know, the province doesn't have a great track record on some of these things. So it would be curious to see how this proceeds. And the acquisition of the port in full, well, I don't even know why that would be required. 
but that's the plan so far as Mr. Risley, who's also the chair of the Canada's Ocean Supercluster. So we'll see where we go from there, but I think we're going to hear more and more about wind and hydrogen in particular, given the fact that scaling up transmission from an offshore wind farm or an onshore wind farm to market would be a massive undertaking. And also, you're looking at some pretty tricky and complicated issues in other parts of the country and in the northeastern United States, because even in Maine, they had a public referendum to nix a Hydro-Quebec plan because they didn't want to have the work being done, the ecological issues surrounding transmission cables. So anyway, hydrogen project may be coming to the West Coast. And also, I guess it's worthwhile continuing to well, I guess you follow along with Maritime Rose in the city of, pardon me, the town of Stephenville about the Stephenville Airport and the future of. You know, Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group with pretty lavish plans to invest in the Stephenville Airport, to buy it, remains an airport, but of course for his commercial drone business that they were talking about, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, tons of jobs to be created, but not much action on that particular one. You want to talk about it? We can do it. So, you know, if there was government involved in any particular wind play, it would be interesting to understand how that unfolds. But sticking with, you know, the unbelievable boondoggle, and I try not to use that word too much, regarding muskrat. Uh, I read a piece by Terry Roberts on the Sieve this morning regarding the fact that, remember, Astaldi was such a curious hire to begin with. Initially, it was a $1.1 billion uh, contract with Astaldi, and they had wide-ranging uh, interest in Muskrat Falls. So they were brought into, where do I read it here, uh, build the intake and powerhouse, transi transition dam, and the spillway at Muskrat. Eventually, the Muskrat Falls Corporation, one of the subsidiaries, made extra payments to Astaldi in excess of $700 million dollars. They had no experience in that type of business, in that type of terrain, those types of conditions. I remember the ill-fated dome that they were going to build over the project for winter construction, and that was a, a miserable failure. So they were eventually ousted from the Muskrat Falls site back in 2018. There was some subcontractors and other vendors who were left high and dry. Some have been paid. Some are in the process of getting paid. But Hydro went to an arbitrator to deal with some of the issues being brought forward with damages being demanded by Astaldi. All right. So we don't really know exactly what the outcome was. Hydro says it was a victory. Astaldi says not so much, and they'd like the opportunity to set the record straight, but they say it would be inappropriate given the confidenti confidentiality provisions of the arbitration process. Okay, so Terry asked some good questions here. What became of the performance security of roughly $180 million that was seized from Astaldi when it was evicted from the project? Was some or all of it returned to Astaldi? Excellent question, Terry. Next one. How much did the arbitration cost? Did the panel order one side to pay the cost of the other? Another good one. What were the consequences of removing Astaldi from the project and hiring a replacement contractor, who ended up being Pentagon? Uh, how did it impact the schedule and the cost at Muskrat Falls? These are all pretty excellent questions. So, yes, we can say there's a victory. Hydro hasn't had many victories regarding the hydro business, whether it be at the Upper Church, Landor, Muskrat Falls, but they're claiming one on this front. But the questions being asked by Mr. Roberts are spot on. They're right on the money, and it'd be nice to have just a little bit more information, wouldn't it, folks? Details, scanty. You know, yet another 
vague piece of business being conducted by the province. And now yet another report being withheld. We know that the Rothschild report is in hand. Minister Cody said that there was commercial sensitivities that could not be released, but goes on to say that the rest of the report that is not commercially sensitive will also not be released. Not even an understanding as to whether or not Rothschild and co. Uh, agree with Moya Green and her premier economic recovery team's report. So, and this one now is about an investigation into what is the alleging toxic and harassing harassment and a brutal workplace at Elections NL, and also the potential for nepotism, hiring family members. So David Brazel, the interim leader, and of course the leader of the PC party at this moment in time, says he's 100% sure it's in hand. Paul Lane feels the same way. Someone set up an email account to send me an email last week to say that they are one of the people that was interviewed inside this report and guarantees it's 100% real. Now, if the government has it, again, where's the downside? We know what a confusing debacle of an election that was last time around, provincially. Some of it unavoidable, some of it just ridiculous. So what that meant for the workings inside elections in L is an important question. It's important to see the updated legislation to deal with some of these worst-case scenarios to where they're headed. It's not always going to be pandemic elections, but if the report is in hand, the Speaker of the House would have it. If the Speaker has it, then the Premier knows about it. So where is the downside in releasing the report? Or at least acknowledging the fact that it exists. Why are we playing whack-a-mole all the time, trying to get our hands on, taxpayer-funded investigations, reports into economic opportunities, reports into reviewing or analyzing the province's assets, divesting in oil and gas, selling off Marble Mountain, selling off Polar, selling off the NLC, all of these types of things. We deserve to have some more information so we can have some legitimate debate. And it's not just for members of the public. How can we possibly see our 40 elected members of the House of Assembly have an opportunity to rightfully and honestly and in mature fashion debate these issues on the floor. Without the info, we're just throwing darts around, which consequently ends up feeling like we're just throwing mud around, which is not getting us anywhere. So how about a, a little sneak peek under the hood at some of these issues? What do you think? All right, quick sip of coffee, one second. We're back, and that went down the wrong way. Oh, God. I see the Premier last week uh, made an announcement as to how the province was going to deal with some of the surgical backlogs, in particular with joint replacement surgeries. He nips and nips. <laughs> Hips and knees. Okay. So at this moment of time, there's about 3,000 people on the wait list, 2,500 of those waiting for the hip and knee replacements. In years past, Eastern Health performs about 1,400 joint replacements per year, so this is a pretty long list. So the move now is that these are going to be day surgeries. So, okay, the qualifying, not, not all patients would qualify for this particular approach, but it'll be done as an outpatient procedure. So they go home the same day. I don't know what it looks like or feels like in other parts of the country, but my question would be, okay, if this is going to help with the backlog, great. Because folks who are waiting for these replacements really need them to be done. And this can be through all of the different wait lists that we can talk about. But the number one question for me is, if this is medically wise and is in the best interest of the patient, how and why have we waited so long to make this move? 
if it's okay for somebody to get a knee replacement and not the need to occupy a hospital bed, clear the backlog quicker because, of course, for the obvious reasons here with the different approach to outpatient procedures. So if this is reasonable and realistic and medically wise, then why did we wait so long to do it as the wait list continued to grow day after day, week, month, year over year? So anyway, if you're waiting for a replacement, maybe you've been amped up a little bit quicker. Okay. And just a couple of quick ones in the transportation world. So the province now is going to be able to recycle our own tires. I've always kind of scratched my head as to how we were paying another company in Quebec to take our tires away. So now there's been a contract awarded to Halifax C&D Recycling. Process about 500,000 tires annually. Their building is some sort of facility here in the eastern region. For the past 10 years, they've moved off to Quebec. They're used for a variety of uh, applications, tire-derived fuel being the primary. Probably a good thing, but again... This announcement doesn't include exactly what the tender process looked like. I don't know anything about Halifax C&D. They might be world-class, fair ball. But what kind of bids were in place? What kind of other considerations were being brought to bear? I don't know. But we just got an announcement. I guess it's a good thing. So it's using all sorts of applications. I actually know a, a guy, a friend of mine, who owns a part of a business that deals with recycled tires and other materials, and they build like patio stones, and some of it goes towards road repair and what have you. It's a big business. They do great. So maybe Halifax will be able to do great stuff here. And they will indeed reduce the amount of emissions regarding not shipping the tires out to Quebec, but being able to deal with them here. And I hear some curious feedback about cycle transportation. You know, in St. John's and the Corner Brook, there's public transportation, Metro bus here. And the concept of expanding it to other parts of the province not being very well received by many. I think when you look at it and say, well, it's not going to generate any money because it's not going to, or pardon me, profit. But also, it's not an expansion of Metro bus. The metro bus, bus system that exists here and surrounding areas isn't something that you'd be mimicking to bring to rural parts of the province. Public transportation doesn't have to be that 40-foot Cadillac metro bus. There's all kinds of different options and hub-and-spoke opportunities where it might work. You get to leave your car at home. And even for folks who have to travel a long distance for food, whether that be at a retail store and or a food bank, this could be very helpful. So... It's probably a good idea if we just talk it through and see what it might look like and see what it might cost and see how many people it might serve because I think there's a way to do these types of things. It's certainly done in other parts of the country and in the world. So with so many people struggling, it might be a worthwhile endeavor. And again, it doesn't have to be the metro bus style bus inside public transportation, but you want to talk about it? We can do it. All right, how are we doing on the phone this morning, Dave? Let's get it rolling. Uh, where's my stuff here? All right, let's get a tune on the go. This kind of dovetails nicely with what we were just discussing. In 1980, his one and only hit came when he met number 10 on the charts, Gary Newman. Cars, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number two. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing good. Actually, uh, it was a perfect weekend, but then, of course, last night we came off a perfect weekend with rain, drizzle, and fog, which doesn't help a person that's suffering debilitating arthritis, and that's me. So I wanted to talk to you today about the announcement that was actually made last Thursday by the Premier on how they're planning to tackle the backlog for the orthopedic surgeries, mm -hmm. specifically knees and hip replacements. Right. 
So if you remember back to um, September 2020 was when I first called you about needing uh, two knee replacements and how I had been not just fallen through the system, but kind of like really just left behind because at that time, there was, you know, Dr. Fiore was my doctor and he left to uh, go into politics. So May the 6th, 2019, I was actually put on the list for a knee replacement. Here, I, here we are, May 6th, just passed, of 2022, and that marks three years since I started this journey. So I had one knee done last April, and that's over a year now, and uh I found out last Tuesday with my now surgeon, Dr. Ao, that I have to have my opposite hip done before I can have my second knee done. So it's been excruciating pain, of course. Hips are way worse than knees for pain-wise. So um, this whole um, you know, idea that the pandemic caused this backup of hip and knee replacement surgeries and things. I, I, I don't think that's totally true because I did get one done. Um, and, you know, they say that there's 3,000 people waiting for these surgeries. And Dr. Al said they're doing about 1,400 a year. And, you know, that doesn't include the new patients either. So here we are um, with a healthcare system that is broken. And they made an announcement that, you know, they're going to try to fix it using this day surgery clinic that they're, or orthopedic um, surgery unit that they're going to be opening up. And I think it's a great idea. Um, many people will probably not say that it is, but if, you, if I were to look at my life, when I said to Dr. Al last week that I'm, I'm totally done with the pain, I don't have any more endurance for it, and that I will advocate for myself, he encouraged me to do this. Um, it's not personal against him as a doctor, but it is personal for me. It's changed my whole life, you know, work-wise, play-wise, personality, the whole nine yards. So I really think that this new orthopedic surgery announcement is going to be a good thing and a step in the right direction, uh, especially for the people that, you know, are going through 24-7 pain of, you know, teeth grinding pain of, you know, debilitating bones and deteriorating bones. So Just a couple, guess, a couple of quick yeah. points. I, I don't think the argument is that COVID stopped surgery. It just created a backlog because less surgeries were being performed. And that has yeah. all sorts of complications. Uh, I don't know. You probably know more about it than I do. And I eventually will end up on that list. I got a bad feeling. But they talk about patients who qualify. Do you happen to have any type of understanding of who qualifies for an outpatient procedure? You know, it's just remarkable how things have changed. It used to be you gave birth to a child, you're in hospital for a week, now a couple of days gone. You know, and now an outpatient procedure to get my knee replaced? Sounds like a pretty quick turnover. What do you know about the qualifications? Well, okay, based on my own experience, and that's what I got to go by, when I had my knee done last April, it was April 21st, I checked into the hospital that morning, had my knee surgery, woke up in the CCU, uh, which are there for uh, at least 24 hours, and then you're moved to a ward or a room. When I believe that I left the CCU, I could have come home. Everything that I did for in, in the hospital, I basically did for myself. The nurses administered 
the the pain drugs, pain management is very crucial uh, to a recovery. There was, you know, a small window where the uh, physiotherapist came in, took me to the room. I walked on my own. I climbed a set of stairs, and that was it. That was like 24 hours after my surgery. Uh, I, I think if you are the candidate, if you don't have any underlying health conditions that would cause, you know, monitoring afterwards, like heart monitoring or things like that, I think you can come home. I did better with my recovery at home than I actually did in hospital. And I have to, to state, I came home with very little pain medication. I was home three days and I was totally off the pain medication. So a lot of people would not be able to endure that. But when you've endured 15 years of arthritis, um, you're just you're going through the pain of the surgery, but you know every day that's getting better and you're headed towards recovery. And as long as you're doing your at-home exercises and strength build, building and you have somebody to take care of you, I think it's a great thing. I really think it can be done. Well, I'm sure it can, and you're, you have lived experience. So, and like I said off the top, if this is going to work and uh, deal with the backlog quicker, excellent. I mm-hmm. just wonder if this was always an option that's available and medically wise, then why has it taken so long to change the protocols here? Because the wait list has grown. As you mentioned, there's some 2,500 people waiting a hip or a knee replacement. Uh, Eastern Health does about 1,400 a year. So if this has always been available, then why did we wait so long to do it? That's the only kind of curious question that I have. I, and, and I have that question as well, and, and I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of has to do with the situation we are in now economically as a healthcare corporation that's on the verge and on the edge of, well, we really don't know where we're going to end up. And when all of these reports are put together, we have no idea financially where the whole province is going to end up in, in every aspect. So when we look at healthcare in itself, I think right now they're trying to do what they can and they know they have to get this done. And I think what they're doing is they're looking at the cost of doing it and how, like, we all know how much a night in hospital costs a person. So when I had my knee replacement done in April, I was in for uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night. So I had three nights in hospital. I don't believe that that was needed, and I believe we can cut back on expenses uh, if we do the, you know, the, 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 the go home same day. Now, I guess that all looks at if, you know, the physiotherapist says, yes, you're ready. If everything after surgery is, is good, you know, you, you recover, you come back out of your anesthetic or, or whatever way you choose to do it. But I think right now it is cost recovery. And I think that's playing a big role in it. But when you're sitting back and you're the person waiting for the surgery, and like Dr. Rouse said to me last Tuesday, you're going to have a 12 to 14-month wait to have your hip done, I can't do 12 to 14 days. So if they're planning to do this, and I have read studies that has been done in other places and in the United States, and uh, articles have been just being sent to me by people now, and I'm reading them, and it has been 
it's been done for a while in other places. So I think it's time that we give it a chance. Absolutely. Whatever can work, let's get at it because the numbers of people waiting on all the different wait lists is growing leaps and bounds. And that just leaves you like, for instance, I unfortunately have a bit of a understanding about sore knees and sore hips. And all of a sudden you have a sore knee, then it creates a sore hip because your limb starts to become more profound. Next thing you know, you've got complications right through from your hips all the way down to your ankles. So things just kind of get out of control very quickly when you're dealing with orthopedic issues sometimes. So if this works, I'm all for it, of course, like everyone would be. And fingers crossed you're able to navigate however much time it takes for you to get your next procedure done. And Patty, when we're talking about the pain, you say go from hips right to the soles of your feet. It's excruciating pain. But I have to tell you, it affects other things. It affects your mental health, welfare. It affects your personality. I mean, I am not the same person today as I was three years ago. I'm not the same person as I certainly was 10 years ago because of the pain, because of limitations. I now carry a scooter in the back of my SUV, but I can't get it out. I have to have somebody go with me to go grocery shopping so they can take the scooter out for me because it's just impossible for me to do that. So it changes everything. So if we can get this going and people are, are ready to use it, I say let's do it. Because I listen, I'm ready to test drive it for them. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'll be the first one at the door if I have to be. Well, I, I'm with you on all of those fronts. I appreciate the time this morning, Karen. I hope you're well. I will be okay. Right. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, look, if this is going to work, then bring it on. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Tom's there to talk about May 2-4. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I thought I'd start off with the realization that I... I Every year I re-remember that May 2-4 is not actually a paid holiday for people who don't, uh, who don't, aren't, you know, who don't either are part of a collective agreement or just part of their employment agreement with their employers. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. We, we, we value and hold this big holiday up, but for a lot of people, it's just a normal work day. Yeah. They don't work. They well, don't it depends paid. on where you work, right? I mean, around here, it's a it's a holiday, yeah. uh, which wasn't always. We didn't always take all the holidays off. Like, we used to work Good Friday <laughs> and all the rest of it. But uh, it depends on the company that you work for, I suppose. And inside the ranks of government or public sector employees, I think there's 13 paid holidays on their roster. Yeah, well, now it's uh, it's. It's 14 now because of the Truth and Reconciliation. Oh, yes, that's right. That's been added since the 2021. Uh, yep. And a couple of strange ones, right? St. George's Day and Orangeman's Day. I don't know. Anyway, they negotiated it. I suppose they got what they bargained for. It's interesting, though, the Truth and Recognition Day, which just kind of got randomly added. And, uh, and when you really look at it, the governments who on some level, especially the feds who are kind of responsible for us needing to do this truth and reconciliation on some day, uh, some level, they gave themselves all a holiday, but, but it wasn't a holiday where maybe they went out and volunteered or, or they did whatever they would do for truth and reconciliation. It's just another holiday. But if you're a First Nations person and you don't work for the government, it's not a holiday for you. You know, and, and the flip side is that the services that many of the governments provide, which obviously we all rely upon, including First Nations, 
those services aren't there, you know, whether it's a clinic for a medical process or, you know, anything that's non-emergent or, or any sort of social services, like all those things aren't offered on that day. It's, it's an interesting approach to try and um, make the world a better place by giving yourself a holiday. It's interesting. Okay. Now, I don't know if anything will change on that particular national holiday in years to come. I really don't know what the future holds for that. No, not indeed. I, was, I had an interesting conversation with um, with an electrician who was asked to actually go, a commercial fisherman had asked him to uh, go take a diesel engine out of his, his boat, and apparently the engine weighed 450 pounds, and he was putting an electric motor in there with... Um, with battery bank bank and I tried to get a little more information but he hadn't been down to see the site yet but he he had the electrician was just really curious because apparently the, whoever this person was was going to actually use wind and and solar to to charge it so I I went online and tried to figure out like where this magic this magic process was but I really really couldn't get much satisfaction so I I'm, I'm interested to see if I can get a hold of that electrician again and figure it out but I, I did do a little bit of research and, and interesting there's actually a Newfoundland company called I don't know if it's Duxion. I think they D U X I O N. Uh, have you heard of this company? No, I haven't. So anyway, they actually are leading edge, and they're and they're actually developing, and they've developed um, electric motors that will be used in um, turboprops as well as jet engines, and and they have one for commercial fishing boat, but it, but it's hybrid, so it actually is in line, and. It, you can run just straight off this electric. It goes right on the shaft. You can run straight off the electric motor, or you can, when you need to, for either higher power or when your batteries get low, you can run your diesel engine. And then, when when the diesel engine's turning, then then the then then this motor acts as a generator. So then you're charging your your batteries back up. And it, and you know, it, 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 when you really think of it, this is just just a Newfoundland company. It's not, it, I shouldn't say just because that that's being disingenuous, but. You know, they're really leading edge. They've got on their website, uh, they've got what looks like a drone that, that they're developing. So they've got the really, these really efficient um, electric motors. So it just goes to show, like, we, a lot of times we, we punch above our weight, when, but we don't know about it. Well, how, do, how, was it, how am I going to put this? We don't necessarily do a good job of patting ourselves on the back necessarily especially with some achievements that might not be everyday concerns for people living and going about their business in the province but some absolutely big national impl international implications and things we've achieved and they're, they're out there i try to search high and low for some of these stories just to pepper some good news in with what is a continuous cycle of maybe not so good news uh so yeah fair ball you know i i think some of it too comes from kind of our culture or maybe it's kind of seeped into our culture where we don't really talk about efficiency or productivity you know we we talk we focus on good jobs and and really it's almost like it's almost like if if you say the word productivity or efficiency it's somehow you've 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 you know you're gone off the reservation you know because we seem we seem like as a, as a province we seem to value put a high value on bigger is better and 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 that by default oftentimes means that it's less efficient and you know when that's vehicles or homes or whatever else that we what we do and we we don't really have a we don't you know if you, if you go to places so the Scandinavian countries for example they try and balance that if they process a cod it would it wouldn't make any sense to them that they would throw any part away you know and and that translates into efficiency and and waste because there's a cost to get rid of waste and there's a cost for us when we have more than we need however you define more, more than we need and you know jumping over this concept of transportation across the province you know, if you dive into Metrobus's numbers, 
you know, they, they actually take they, they actually cost them around four dollars and sixty cents per ride to drive people around. And for Go Bus it's twenty four dollars and thirty cents per ride. Whereas they get the revenue is like a dollar eighty per two fifty or to two fifty per ride, depending if you buy a package or not. So a lot of times when we're talking about public transportation, I th- I think I think we have to come at it from a different angle because you know we're talking about doing diff- things differently with ferries, and and we need to find a model where we look at it from a an efficiency point of view and what you know what's what's our cost of operation, what's the revenue, and although you won't make money, um, we definitely got to come up with a way to approach our whether it's our public or our private enterprises in a way that's productive and efficient and and sustainable because these are all things that we we really need to build into our lexicon. So instead of looking at the good jobs, it's looking at the sustainable jobs that will still be there in 20 or 30 years that don't destroy the um, don't destroy the uh, environment and and uh, that people can count on. And maybe they don't pay quite as well, but but at least they're jobs that uh, you can go, go home at the end of the day and realize in 20 years' time, hopefully they'll still be there. Yeah, and I think the conversation outside uh, of public transportation outside of St. John's Cornerbrook we should almost, just from my own opinion, we should almost stop even referring to Metrobus because it is never going to be a, even a similar model to what Metrobus is. It'd be much vastly different. You know, we're talking about 15 passenger vans versus these massive big buses and hub and spoke versus the the centralized uh, Metrobus public transportation system. So there, nothing's going to replicate that. And I don't think anyone really suggests that that's the approach we take on that front. But anywho, uh, another call coming in, Tom. I appreciate your time this morning as usual. Okay, everyone. Stay safe. Thank Take you. Care. Bye-bye. All right, get to Brian before we go, Dave. Let's go. Line number four. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? I'm pretty good. No, Patty, I've got something serious to talk about today. And if you think I'm being too grumpy, just cut me off. On Sunday, I got off early this morning. I was listening to your newscasts on the OCM, which is very good, by the way. And they were talking about what the police were up to on Saturday night, and I think it was Saturday night. And they said that, uh, I don't know what was on the Transcanda Highway, they stopped this motorist. And I really hope that that person listened to me. And he was speeding. Now, they, they found out that he had a suspended license and he had no insurance. Happens all the time. You know, Patty... That is crazy. These are idiots. And why I phoned in today, I just want to point out the people that they're hurting. Now, first of all, when there's an accident, you're hurting the person that that's in the other car. It may be you. It may be your children. You're hurting the family. You're hurting... There are people who got to come and, uh, like the paramedics, and that's not an easy job, Patty. You're dealing with the funeral homes or to deal with these families. So one person on the road who's living, what I say, the Donald Trump lifestyle, where laws don't have anything to do with me, they're going to cause immense problems. You know, Patty, when I, when I worked in Prince Albert, I taught at a school out there, and I was on a team that would help our parents and and families whose children died in school. They may have died of cancer or brain tumors. 
but some of them died in car accidents. And that's why what a lot of people look forward to the 24 weekend, I don't. Because when I worked in Prince Albert, if there was going to be a, an accident, it would happen on the 24th. And I'd get a call from the principal, and I wouldn't, all I know is that just tell me the person's name. I'd be a student who got killed. So I don't look forward to 24 weekends. But again, these idiots, they cause problems for the families, the police, and the paramedics. When I was working at high school, I got to know some paramedics and some police people. And the police people would tell me when there's an accident and unfortunately when there's a death, they had to go to the family. And one policeman said, I hated to do that. He said, when I knock on the door, I knew that on the other side were a group of people whose lives were going to be changed forever with what I had to say. And I worked with some of those parents. And now we have on our highways people who, I, as I said, live the Donald Trump lifestyle. The law doesn't have, that, have anything to do with me. They're driving with, with um, suspended licenses. They're, they have, they've been given... This guy, a person, had $17,000 in fines. That's an awful lot of... Yeah, I don't think that the number is always just driving-related issues. It could be outstanding fines for a variety of things, and that's what we've been told repeatedly because every time I hear that story and someone has $30,000 in outstanding fines, I think, how did it take us this long to figure out that that person noticed $30,000 before they were taken to task? So sometimes it can be contraband-related fines and what have you. So there's more to it than simply traffic-related matters. I'll give you the last word quick, Brian, before they flag me off to the break. Well, Patty, these idiots should be taken off the road. I don't know how you do it. I don't know what to do. But someone should do it. Someone is going to die in your command, and these idiots are going to be the cause of it. Thank you, Patty, for letting me come on. And uh, I, I like your like your program. I think VOCM, you have good news, and I think people should listen to you. <laughs> I appreciate Thank that, you. Brian. Take good care. God bless you. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Jonathan's in the queue. wants to talk about vacancies. Teachers, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's do it. Line number three. Jonathan, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Patty. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to do it. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit uh, to the listeners uh, um, regarding my own family situation. And um, I know on Friday you had Trent Langdon on talking about teacher shortages uh, across the province. And um, that was one reason my wife and I moved back to Newfoundland. I moved to British Columbia. My wife and I are both teachers uh, after graduating Mon in, in 2011 because I was looking at a couple of years substituting here on the island. And uh, in northern BC, I could work full time right away. So I made the decision to move there. And for 10 years, I, uh, I worked in a small K-12 school with Indigenous students and, uh, you know, got a lot of skills that I picked up. I worked in special education as a case manager. Um, I'm English social studies uh, qualified, but I also taught math, science, PE. I had my master's. I was the head teacher when I left. Um, but now in Newfoundland, I can't work and my wife can't work. We've both been without paychecks since December. 
Um, but in British Columbia, you know, we could have uh, continued to work. And I moved home. My father and my wife's father are both aging. And with the COVID situation, we wanted to be close to home in case something happened to, uh, to anybody. Um, but I think the government shooting themselves in the foot here. You know, I know there are 20 to 30 that I know personally, other teachers that are also off because of mandates. And, you know, at this point, I think it's really, uh, it's, it's punitive. And, you know, the government's not providing an alternative plan, such as weekly testing, you know, where I can still work and earn a paycheck. Um, you know, they're just outright, you're not qualified. Uh, you're no longer on the, the list uh, to, to work. And I don't understand the science behind it. Students uh, in the school are not required to be vaccinated. They're also the least uh, vulnerable population. Um, And not only that, but I have no idea coming for the upcoming year in September if I'm going to be able to work or my wife's going to be able to work. And, you know, I really don't feel that it's fair to leave families in limbo. Make up up your mind. Either we can be teachers or we can't. Uh, You know, it's a hill I'm willing to die on, and I'll go into other... Um, fields. I have worked in other fields before, and I'll go back and do something different if I have to. But, um, you know, the government's not making it easy on us, and uh, I really don't understand why. And I just want to go one step further and uh, talk a little bit about my father, who's a a doctor, a general practitioner. Well, just before we get uh, to your father, uh, I don't know what the public health policies are in every province across the country. I have no earthly idea. So you're telling me that in B.C. there are no such. And when when we're talking mandates, we're talking about vaccination, right? That's correct. Okay. So in British Columbia, there are no vaccination mandates in place for anybody working in the public sector, whether it be healthcare, teachers, or otherwise? Uh, teachers are not. They left it up to school districts. So each district made up their own decision. I believe out of the 20 to 30 school districts, only two uh, ended up implementing the policy. Okay. Well, I didn't know what the case was. Just as it pertains to mandates. So the province has full control of this particular one regarding teachers, public sector workers. I have no idea what the total number is of people who would have been employed in the public sector who are now off on unpaid leave, teachers or otherwise. And then you talk about the federal mandate uh, regarding getting on an aircraft or on a train or what have you. At this point in time, and I've made this point many times, and a lot of people disagree with me. If the mandates were in place for a variety of reasons, number one, to encourage, coerce, or force people to get vaccinated, whatever word people like to choose depending on where they stand on this particular issue. So then the government has to have a way to measure the success of the policy and then to understand when it's come to its natural conclusion. At this point, if you're vaccinated, you're vaccinated. And the current definition of two primary series shots plus 14 days. Unless that changes, we're not achieving anything at this point. If someone is unwilling to get vaccinated, you said you would die on this hill. So you're never going to get the vaccine. So what are we doing? Are we simply punishing people or has the the policy just worn itself out? No one's going to change their tune on these things. Some people might be hesitant to get any additional number of boosters down the line, but until the definition changes, that's just a personal decision. So I agree. We have to talk about when this comes to a natural end. And if it's not going to be known until September whether or not you're going to be able to apply for a job, you and your wife, that's too late. 
makes no sense. And same thing with the federal government. They owe an explanation as to why it remains in place. So if c people want to say, give me the scientific justification, okay. More importantly for me, give me the rational discussion as to why it is. Because nothing is changing. No one else is getting a vaccine, or very, very, very few people are going to now all of a sudden say, okay, that's it. I wouldn't get it for two years, but now I'll get it. So anyway, I think it's a, a conversation that is absolutely has to be had. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, people are, are suffering, not just, you know, families like myself, um, but, you know, schools, you know, teachers who are, are stressed, can't get replacements in. I did want to mention my father, uh, you know, who's a medical doctor. He's a, a general practitioner. He served uh, the province for 47 years. And um, he is also unvaccinated, um, you know, but he's not allowed to practice um, in his office anymore. He has to do online calls, practice from home. Uh, you know, he's quite healthy as well, um, but he can only see half the number of patients now. You know, seeing somebody on the phone or, or on the Internet is much different than seeing them in person. You can't provide the level, level of care uh, that you would like to, to provide. And, uh, you know, he's forced to sit at a desk all day rather than walk around. And, and, you know, like they're basically he's got to be forced to retire. I mean, you know, so in terms of teachers and doctors and they're screaming for, for, for these employees, these people to, to come into the province. And, you know, I left D.C. in September to move home to, to teach here. And, you know, I always wanted to come back. And, and uh, you know, I don't I'm shaking my head now why I why I ever did. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous at this point. And, uh, you know, we really got to think about what we're what we're setting up here in terms of the future for, for our children and our children's children. And, and, you know, I really don't like the way we're, we're headed in any direction. Uh, I, I really can't say. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it just doesn't make sense. And I would like like you said, you know, if you're willing to, to take somebody's jobs away, or you know something that you, they paid seventy five, hundred thousand dollars to be able to do over there, then you should be forced to explain the science. And I mean, the science shows that wane, the vaccines have waning efficacy. Anybody who was double vaccinated months ago, you know, I had natural immunity recently, you know, about three, two months ago, maybe even less. And you know, my, I'm just as as protected as they are now, at this point. According to the science that I'm reading. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily 100% accurate about the the amount of time your immunity remains in place, whether it be vaccination and or natural. There is natural immunity associated with contracting the virus. Absolutely, there is. Anyway, uh, it's 10.03 odd, and so I'm off to the news. But if you wanted to broach other subjects where you think we're going in a bad direction or a poor direction at another time, you're welcome to, welcome to come back on the show. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and, and I, I may do that, Patty. I mean, it's a conversation worth having, I think. Uh, and you have a, a great number of listeners, and uh, I appreciate you uh, providing this service to people to be able to express their opinions and views. So thank I appreciate you the time. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, okay, bye bye. Yeah, and I know it's probably unpopular given there's just an extraordinary number of uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are fully vaccinated, two shots in the primary series plus 14 days, that think that, you know, the mandates are important. But. But are the mandates doing anything anymore? That's the question. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Edgar, you're on the air. Hey, how are you this morning? Top shelf. How about you? Oh, top shelf, buddy. <clears throat> Listen, uh, question for you. Sure. 
if you know us. If you don't know, well, that's, that's fine then. I'll find out. Who makes up the rules and regulations of uh, ATV helmets well, on that subject that we were on last week? Here? That would be in Minister Sarah Stoddy's department at Service NL. Service NL, yeah, that's what I figured. Yep. That's uh, the government, right? That is the government. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'll, uh, I hope you're listening. Not more than likely they are because they're all listening to uh, to you because it's a great show and it's very educational. And a lot of people learn stuff from the show. Like, I didn't know you had to wear a helmet on an Argo. Anything off-road, now the new yeah. ATV, Argo, side-by-sides, you have to wear a helmet. All right. All right. I proved something the weekend. I got a... I got a, uh, okay, you're on our go, you're going through. He comes to a pond. What do you got to do? Take your helmet off, leave him on, put your uh, life jacket on, you're going rid of it, root in the pond. That's what's fur, right? Yeah, well, I mean, an interesting yeah, so one regarding uh, life jackets is Transport Canada says that there has to be a life jacket available to every person in in or on the boat, but you don't have to wear it. It always seems like just such a strange rule. Yeah, that, that, it's, that's, that's, that's stupid. Like, that to me, excuse the words, but that is stupid. You should have to put it down, especially in an Argo. If an Argo takes on water, she's going to the bottom. Yeah. There's not a flotation device in an Argo. And listen, I'll tell you something else now that's going to be stunning for them. Or who's sitting down? Who's the who's the, the minister of the meeting that makes those rules? I got a 19-horsepower, 48-inch cut Husqvarna lawnmower. And I got an Argo that's 21-horsepower. She's two of it's brand new. The Argo was $30,000 with tracks and everything on her. And the Husqvarna was, uh, I don't know, 2800 bucks or something, but it's a nice lawnmower. The lawnmower is way faster than the Argo because we tried the weekend. Buddy come behind me, buddy come behind me with the Argo, and he couldn't get you. And you can't stand up on the lawnmower. It's tippy. If you go off the... the Shoulder road, you're tipping over. Like it's, it's very, very unstable. Even on my line there, the least little tip, you got to lean to one side. And if you lean too much, the shot's off. Yeah, as soon as your and, bum comes off the seat, they'll stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, anyway, once your shot's off, what are you going to do then? You sit on it, you start it, and you're afraid to move. I guess the now there's no reference to needing a helmet on a sit-on lawnmower, but yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like the lawnmower is faster and less stable than the Argo. Like I, I had Argo. My father had Argo ever since I was 12 years old. I wore a helmet on a screw ever since I was 12 years old. Nothing to me. Like there's no no new to me. My, my father made me wear it, but. The, the stability of an Argo, I never ever seen one tip over. And I haul moose with it, I haul wood with it, I'm after hauling everything with it. There's the stability between an Argo and a, and a Husqvarna lawnmower. I'm only, I'm only saying Husqvarna because that's, that's what, what you I got. got. Just quickly though, I mean, there's no reference specifically to Argos in the legislation that I saw. Now, I didn't read every single word inside the 19 pages, but even in the news release, it does not mention an Argo, so I'll confirm that before yeah, okay. I go too far on it. Now, and I guess the issue is about the terrain. You're much more likely to be in a potentially dangerous situation off-road than you are on your lawn. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. How can I be wrong? A lot of of people, my lawn, 
You come down and look at my lawn now. On the left side of my lawn, on my neighbor's side, is, is pretty steep. I got to go down straight and come up straight. I can't do it side on. I'd said it's much more likely. Not everyone has a, the type of hilly lawn that you have. We had a sit-on mower, and at the cabin, there was one hill that was particularly steep. And so the rule very quickly became, especially me as the, I was pretty young at the time, was we didn't use the mower the ride on on that hill. We broke up the old push mower to do that particular hill because it was really, really steep. So I use mine, but I go straight down, straight up. I would never turn sideways. Yeah, at the bottom of the of this particular hill that we had there was no real legitimate opportunity to easily turn the rig around because it became yeah. very much natural terrain that was full exactly. of bushes and shrubs and alders and all the rest it just wasn't okay, manageable. Let, let me anyway. go on let me go on where i can get everything in uh, now there 15 years ago mm-hmm. i see everybody unloading their quads i got a quad i bought a brand new quad 2003 and she's almost 20 years old. She's in good shape now to what, what she was when I bought her. Like, near scratch on her nothing. And I hauls wood, I does everything. Anyway, I went up and bought a set of those ramps that goes up in the back of the pickup, you know, falls up, that aluminum ramp. Yeah. You know the ones I'm talking about? I can picture them. Yeah. The guy that was giving demonstrations on NTV there last week, he, he just came down off one of them ramps to unload the bike. And he was showing the figure eight demonstration on flat ground. I bought a set of them ramps, and uh, I come down. I put the put the bike up in the truck, and I put took the bike down when I got up to the cabin. And I said said to the wife, "Now you know them ramps I bought." She said, "Yeah." I said, "You know where they're going?" I said, "I'm hanging them up in the garage, and I'll never use it no more." She said, "Boy," I said, "Because it's too steep and it's dangerous, and if the bike tips over, man, you're dead." So I took them ramps, hung them up in the garage, and they're in there now ever since, never, ever unfolded. And I go, what I do is now I backs me pickup down into a ditch somewhere where it is level and it's impossible to tip over. And you find a place somewhere where you can unload your bike or, or build a, a nice wooden ramp or something like that up by your cabin where you can unload it and uh, be a lot more safer. But the way he unloaded that bike the other day, sure, he was... He was tit for tat. Like he was explaining safety, but he just done something that was, as far as I'm concerned, that was totally, totally, totally dangerous. Understood. I appreciate the time this morning, Edgar. Off to the break I go. You're always welcome. Yeah, and uh, and very quickly. Uh, Minister and Minister Murray is the best one ever we had there because she finally, someone finally realized that she was eating fish. Thanks for this. Thanks, Betty. All the best, Edgar. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. And from the department itself, Argos are included in the legislation regarding helmets. There you go. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Shane Cashin. You're on the air. Good morning, Pat. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Very A little tired from the weekend. I, before I go on about that, I just wanted to say, when he was talking about the Lorraine lawnmower, I, I remember about the story about George Jones and how his wife took the keys away from him and drove four miles to the nearest liquor store on Ronnie's lawnmower. Uh, you might have heard about that one, but anyway, uh, let's talk about the Atlantic Sports and Recreation Weekend, the uh, wrap-up here that we had that I mentioned a couple weeks ago to you. Uh, it was a huge success. We had maybe 100 people, I roughly, I would say, in attendance, you know, uh, athletes, friends, family, their supporters, uh, we had CC Battle on Friday. 
Uh, my buddy Jay Taylor, who is a former colleague of yours, was there to judge. Uh, a couple other people. We had a screech on Sunday. We had a uh, dinner, a dance on Saturday night with music provided by yours truly. And we had uh, the banquet at the Capitol Hotel. Fantastic job, as always, with the Capitol. And, of course, some of the esteemed guests that we had, we had the national president of the Canadian Council of Blind, Jim Tokas, in attendance. We also had Minister Studley in attendance. And we had uh, Minister John Abbott and his aide in attendance, amongst other people. Of course, we can't forget Ron Ellsworth as well. Cannot forget him. Comfort large for City of St. John's. And it was a fantastic time had by all. And uh, there were many, many athletes taking part in all these friendly games, including, you know, traditional track and field and things like horseshoe, discus, um, you know, uh, runs, um, all kinds of stuff, even things like crib. And, and just it's, it's not just necessarily, you know, boots on the ground athletics, but it's also social and also things like cards and darts everything in between so shane you say it was a huge success how do you measure success what made it a huge success in your mind happy people that to me is is a success lots of compliments uh jim told me personally that it was a fantastic time he, he was just amazed by how people reacted and friendship the camaraderie um I unfortunately couldn't attend any of those uh, events because I was uh, entertaining uh, uh, Jim and doing other things behind the scenes. But I, I know that the athletes had a lot of fun, and I'm sure that, that somebody will uh, call you some point down the road and, and elaborate more on that side of things. That sounds good. Now, the trick will be it's great to introduce people to these activities, athletics and otherwise. The real key now will be to get them, keep them coming back. Well, we have a continuing program of different uh, things, like we do bowling, we do other things. We have our dinner and dances. But uh, this, these games were never meant to be an end. They were a means to a greater good, a greater goal or an end, I guess. And, uh, you know, we are in the process of right now of, re of building up our sports side of things and our recreation so to include more of these sorts of events on a regular basis but we also advocate that that people also join you know uh, other activities in the community and and we also advocate that you know groups that host these types of events also become more inclusive sounds great i really appreciate you giving me an update uh, it's great to tell us about it leading into it and i'm really pleased that it was a big success and impressed the national president too so that's a good thing anything else you want to tell us about this morning shane I just wanted to say that judging from what response we've got, and, and I, haven't, I haven't gotten any word with the committee yet about any future plans, but as I said in front of everybody uh, Sunday night at the Capitol, stay tuned. <laughs> Sounds good. Keep us in the loop, Shane. Will do. Thank okay, you. Buddy. Have a good uh, you too. Shane Cash from the Canadian Council of the Blind. Let's go to line number four. Sean, you're on the air. That's a great story, Patty. Terrific. It really is. Patty, what a great weekend we had, and uh, we usually don't hear about good news uh, often, but uh, the good news is I haven't heard of any fatalities or serious crashes this weekend, and I have to take my hat off to all the enforcement services that are out in full force and uh, lots of messaging by Jolene, Corporal Jolene Garland and, uh, and Mr. Uh, Cadigan. 
Constable, Constable, yeah. One lady did tell me that she heard of an ATV-related fatality. I can't confirm it, so I'm just going to leave the location and any of the details she shared out of it. But I haven't seen any of these tragic headlines after the long weekend, too, which is encouraging. Well, you know, this is the first weekend. It was a warm one. Maybe you can chalk it up to the price of fuel in some ways, but I think people went where they wanted to go pretty well. Uh, but they're, you know, the, the fact that it's, it's such a good news story never makes the headlines, um, but it is. And I think that, that's a good indicator of how we should treat the entire summer. I mean, like, like life is too precious, and it's too late after something happens, you know, to say we could have, should have, would have. Um, so I wanted to, uh, to, to make mention of that uh, this morning as I head into St. John's now. And people just seem to be driving a little more careful. Maybe, again, it's the price of fuel they aren't speeding around as fast as they are. Maybe I'm just not seeing them, which is great. I prefer not to and not encounter it. But I thought I'd call in this morning and, and uh, bring up that bit of good news and, and encourage everybody, from the youngest drivers, which are the, the least experienced, uh, all the way to the oldest drivers, to uh, continue that great example for the rest of the summer. And we'll all make it into, into fall in good shape. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. That's it. That's all I wanted to say this morning. It's a great, great story. That, and I hope that that that, uh, that bit of information you just mentioned about an ATV accident, that, God, I hope that's not so, but if it is, our hearts go out to the families and everyone. Me too. I'm, see, I'm trying to find out whatever information is out there, but hopefully it's a rumor versus a fact. Uh, I appreciate the time, Sean. Thanks for the call. Okay, take care of yourself. You okay. too. Be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to line number five. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm going to change my topic. I was listening to the lady talking about how good she was when she got, got home with her knee replacement. And, you know, I had a friend. Uh, she broke her foot. And she got up, or she, they sent her home one night uh, with just a cast on, and the next day they took her in and gave her, an, had an operation done on it. And um, then they sent her home after that. And, I mean, she's a whole month now and still not recovered. And, and the part is, like, not everybody got help at home like this lady had. Because, uh, like I said, if, if I had to have an operation, I got two children that are working full time and they got families and small children. Who, who am I going to turn to? You know, and there's other people out there like me. I just like to, you know, uh, speak out. Uh, some people don't speak out and, and, and probably I'm wrong for doing it. I don't know. But, I, you know, I could see how she suffers. And um, because she had to, she had nobody to turn to to help her out, you know. She yes, she had a couple of neighbors who used to be able to check on her, and make sure she was doing a little bit. But I mean, if we weren't around, she had nobody to help her out. So she was had had to get up and do stuff on her own. I mean, she was in 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 the hospital. They phoned us to pick her up. And I, and I explained to them their situation. They said, well, can't you stay with her for a while? You know, uh, to, to me, and if I could lift the lady or help the lady out in a way, I would have stayed all night with her. But I can't do it. And she had nobody to turn to. You know, and they, and I don't think they take it in consideration. They think because you got family that they're there to help you. And they're not, Patty. 
they're not there to help you. It's great if you've got a husband with you and he's a good man and he does stuff for you, but it's not all men do that. You uh, know? Well, okay. And some men are excellent, but there's other men, they can't even make a cup of tea for themselves. So, you know, the, the part is, they gotta, they got to look into the situations all different, not just judge one, one person or two people. You know, they gotta, they got to look at the whole situation when they're sending somebody home, to, you know, to, to heal. And, and, you know, the lady said, well, she was kept there for a couple of days, and probably that's the reason why she healed so good, because she did have to stay in, where this other lady was sent home the day of her operation, and with nobody at help her. Well, I, every situation is going to be different. Uh, of course, that just makes all the sense in the world to me. And that's how I would imagine evaluations are done for who should be discharged and when. And if not, it absolutely should be part of the conversation, for sure. Uh, Roz, did you have no, something about... Like I said, Patty, I explained to the ones releasing her that she had no one to do anything for and they still had sent her home. Probably if she had to be kept overnight... You know, to give herself a chance, but uh, they sent her home, whether she had someone to help her or not. Okay. And, I, and I explained to him why, you know, I was picking her up and, and, and a friend of mine, another friend of mine were picking her up. But I mean, the part is, and this lady can tolerate pain that was sent home. She... I never saw anyone tolerate pain like she did. Did, but like I said, not to be able to even make a cup of tea for yourself is something wrong. You know when they understood at home like that, Patty. And like I said, I'm I'm glad that I can get on with you and speak my mind about it because hopefully someone else is listening too. It's great when you got you got help. But like I said, there's a lot of people out there that haven't got help, and some of them are too proud to ask. Uh, Roz, it also says that you want to talk about something about a budget, which we can get to quickly before I have to go. Oh, okay. Um, no, I wanted to talk about our uh, ch- children taught how to budget in school, Petty. Somewhat. Somewhat, yeah. yeah, because you know, like I said, I saw a little guy, and he had a he had a debit card for himself, and he was in the store, and he was tapping. And I said, "Do we realize how much he, you know, do he he know what that tap card is all about, you know?" And and it's sort of like, wow, okay, it, this is the way of the future. They don't have money anymore. It's all all about plastic tapping, and um, you know, I'm I'm just wondering. It's, is this the reason why, you know, like, I, I had to teach myself how to budget. And and some people out there are not capable of teaching themselves how to do a petty. Yeah, but that would be more a, a parental responsibility. If I give my child, my son or daughter, a, a debit card with a tap feature, surely it falls on me to tell them what they should be aware of and how that operates and to check their balance and all those things. I mean, that's that's more a parental thing. But as you know, as it relates to word problems inside mathematics, some of it is about affordability in real life circumstances for sure. Yeah, you know, like, like I said, the part is, I think um, uh, teaching a child how to budget is, is one of the main things that they should be taught in school because when they get out in real life and they're used to mom and dad helping them a lot and then they get out and, you know, they haven't got a clue. 
you know. But anyway, <laughs> that's that's all I, I wanted to talk about today, Patty, and thanks for your time. I appreciate the call, Ross. Take care. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. Let's, uh, before we go to the break, let's go to line number one. Robert, you're on the air. Patty. Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning. I just came in. I'm from Southern Shore. I just came in from uh, St. John's. Okay. And Middle Pond Hollow is totally congested. There's two, there's two vehicles there and a head on collision. Where's Middle Pond Hollow? In this side between Bay Bulls and the Goals. Bay Bulls, Middle Pond, Big Pond, before you get to the Big Pond. Okay. There's an awful smell there now. And so All there right. was a traffic accident or a collision. Yeah, traffic accident. Yeah, head on collision. A pickup and an SUV. Well, hopefully people make it away from it unscathed, and of course that's a pretty tight area anyway, so I would imagine it is quite a snarl. So if you're planning on getting so, yeah. in and or out of the area, a, don't. There's a, you can't even tell what the vehicle is. The pickup, you can see what it is, but you can't see what the, you never tell what the SUV is. Oh, no. I couldn't tell what it was. <laughs> well, hopefully the person right. is not hurt, or at least not hurt too badly. Uh, anything else, Robert? No, that's about it, buddy. Thanks for I appreciate it. the heads up. Take care. Bye-bye. So if you're planning on traversing Middle Pond Hollow, maybe wait for a while. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Well, we don't know how come home year is going to work out, but it's going to be the summer of Elvis. Join us on line number three, Master Showman, Elvis impersonator Thane Dunn. Good morning, Thane. You're on the air. Good Good morning, me buddy. How are you? Grand today. Thanks. How about you? <laughs> hey, I'm 10 feet off the ground, man. Love I'm it. Excited, excited, excited. What do you uh, and the Cadillac Kings have up your sleeve for the summer? Well, we have a lot of shows. Uh, we we are getting very, very busy. There, There's an Elvis movie that's coming out on the 24th that is supposed to be amazing, and uh, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. So it's been great. We have a Elvis Greatest Hits uh, tour that we're doing in June, and we were supposed to uh, actually only because of Omicron happened, and thank God that's over with, but we were supposed to be in uh, across the island, uh, Newfoundland, in January. And that has changed. I'm going to be in Arizona probably for three to four months now. We've really taken off down there. And uh, I'm excited to say that today at noon, tickets for our new Elvis Summer Festival at the St. John's Arts and Cultural Center go on sale. So it's my, one of my favorite places in the world. And I'm just, if I sound excited, it's because I am. I love it. So the Elvis movie. This has been held up because of the pandemic. I think uh, HBO Max, but it's going to be in theaters in the UK, I read sometime mid to late June. Uh, who's playing Elvis? As uh, a guy, his name is Austin. I'll be honest with you, I'm not too familiar with him, but uh, I see a lot of people pick it apart and everything and say he doesn't look like Elvis and this and that. But I think that from what, everything that I've seen, it looks to me like he's done his homework. And uh, I think I'm very excited about it, actually. Um, it looks great, and I just hope that it tells the story the right way. But uh, his uh, Lisa Marie actually liked or loved the movie, so she's usually the one that's like the, the biggest critic in the family. And if she liked it, then I think I think next year what we're going to see, Patty, is when we're when when we're at the Avalon Mall and uh, we see kids going by with Led Zeppelin shirts and uh, the Beatles. I think next year, kids or this year, kids will start wearing Elvis T-shirts. I think this is going to be huge. Uh, well, some of the most recent biopics have been smash hits, and there's no reason to believe that one about uh, the King of Rock and Roll is going to be an exception. So I'm actually looking forward to it. I'm a big Elvis fan, as you know, Thane, and mm-hmm. big fan of seeing your shows. 
are awesome. So hopefully people will take up the charge now, buy a ticket to see yourself in the Cadillac Kings. You got them in tow for all the shows? Well, I'll, be, I'll tell you something. Uh, the pandemic, one thing that we're doing here this time around that's different, uh, we've had, you know, fill-ins uh, from Newfoundland. Bill Brennan, for example, has been on with us. He's world-class. He's just amazing. And my wife and I, she sings. She does the high, uh, the high boy singing. She does uh, the Kathy Westmoreland part. She's worth the price of admission alone. But anyway, we, were, we have a show here, and we have different various shows all around. And what we're doing is we're, because musicians have been hit so hard by this, what we're doing is we're supporting local. So, for example, uh, when, when I'm at the Arts and Cultural Center on the 14th, David Fitz of the Fables, he is my band leader, and he has put, I mean, Newfoundland has so many talented musicians, so he's got, he, we've got the cream of the crop. I mean, we've got, it's, it's going to be mind-boggling. And it's just really cool how all these guys are so excited to be performing with me, and, and I'm excited to be performing with them. So it's, and I never really get a chance to, every time we get to Newfoundland, all I really ever see is I, I you know, I see the airport and I see the hotel and I see the venue and I may see a Jeep restaurant after the show, but then we go home. And uh, this time around, I, I may have some, I'm not sure, but uh, we may get in, uh, my wife and I may actually be able to to go around and see th- see some things finally in Newfoundland, and I jog every morning now, and I'm I'm probably in better shape than I've ever been in my life. I have a 30 inch waist, and I I remember one time Tim McGraw was over there and he was jogging, and there was a <laughs> a trail of people after him. So maybe we can uh, all get a jog in, and maybe you can join me. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> 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 Look, I'll tell you, you are the most patient man in Newfoundland, I'll tell you. And I agree with you on the push mower. <laughs> yeah, well, that was my father. No riding on the, uh, that steep hill on that ride on uh, mower. I don't even know what that is these days. Anyway, Thane, if people want to uh, get some tickets to go see the show, where do they go? Well, the easiest, probably easiest thing is if they want to go to www.thane, that's T-H-A-N-E, done, D-U-N-N, dot C-A. And if you want to see what you're, you know, what you're into, check out the website, and you can also get them at the uh, Arts and Cultural Center in St. John's at the box office and on their website, and there's a phone number and all that stuff there as well. So, And we're very excited, and I once again, I want to thank, you know, the, the folks at BOCM. I want to thank everybody, you know, because Newfoundland has been so cool and I've been there for three years. It feels like forever. Well, we welcome you back with open arms uh, this summer, Thane. Good to have you on the show this morning. Appreciate the time. Patty, I really appreciate your time, man. I'm, I'm trying to pull a Kenny Rogers here, so thank you very much. Okay. My pleasure. You have a great day, my friend. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye, Thane. Bye-bye. Thane Dunn is an Elvis impersonator, and look, I tell you, it's a great show. It really is. And I wonder why you mentioned Kenny Rogers. Was that a reference to the fact we had Kenny on this show one time? That was really great. Really remember that one let's go to line number two joe you're on the air uh morning patty how are you not too bad thanks how are you how are not you not too bad uh i'm calling more of a heads up to drivers in the in the metro area i was just driving down uh, thorburn road and at one of the stoplights uh i saw a car full of uh, young people uh four or five of them uh, stopped and uh, all four doors opened they all changed uh positions in the car and they went on like just like in the movies uh, so I saw that, and I said, okay, that's fine. And uh, then I was on the outer ring, uh, continuing on, and there was a car uh, on the eastbound lane, and there was three young people stopped. 
uh, and two of them were doing like frog leaps over top of one another and the other person videotaping. So I don't know if it's a senior pip day somewhere or something of that nature, but I just wanted to give people a heads up to keep an eye out for these young people. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to see anyone get hit or anyone injured. So I think senior pip day happens a little later in the calendar year. And generally speaking, it's on a Friday, but I don't know because I don't have a high school senior in my home anymore. For people that don't know, apparently it's a tradition. I don't remember it being in place when I was in high school where there is one day where the grade 12 students have a coordinated and a forgivable pip. So they all go play hooky for the day and it's tolerated and allowed by administrators and teachers alike. It's sort of a strange tradition to uh, continue to abide by, but there you go. And it might be that today, but keep your eyes peeled for any large groups. But, you know, sometimes when we have a group, whether it be of adults and or teenagers and or children, the group mentality, sometimes you kind of take your eye off the prize, maybe not as cautious or careful as you would be looking both ways if you're just walking by yourself. So you never know when someone might give that one little bit of chase. Next thing you know, there's someone out in front of your vehicle. I appreciate the time, Joe. Thanks for this. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Take, take good care. Bye-bye. All right, so I mentioned off the top of the show that the St. Peter's Pythons volleyball team, they're at the Nationals playing in the other under-18 division. They, on their opening day, went 3-0. Well, after day two, they're 6-0. So they got a buy into the Tier 1 quarterfinal. That's the round of eight. Probably playing the third-ranked team in the tournament there from Quebec. The game is live streamed. So if you go to the school's website, there's probably a link there. If not, I'll try to drum one up for you. 3.30 p.m. Newfoundland time, Ireland in time you can see the st peter's pythons in volleyball action the greatest court sport don't at me we're taking a break don't go away welcome back to the show well in the last couple of weeks been lots of discussion about processing licenses in particular in st mary's bay looking for a snow crab license and of course then the pushback and some protests asking the minister not to approve that project whether it be there was one in brigas another one down in st lawrence the decision has now been made by the minister of fisheries forestry and agriculture that's derek bragg the St. Mary's Bay Fisheries, Inc. The application for a new primary processing license for groundfish, all species, whelk and snow crab for St. Mary's Bay Fisheries, Inc. has been approved. The snow crab license will be restricted to purchase of raw material not exceeding 2.5 million pounds in round weight form. Dandy Dan's Fish Market Limited in Argentia. Application was requested an increase in purchasing of snow crab from 1 million pounds per year to 2 million pounds per year. The minister has approved the application to purchase an additional 1 million pounds of snow crab for the folks at Dandy Dan's Fish Market. So there's the decision. I'm sure they're disappointed in some corners and thrilled in St. Mary's Bay. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, first off, uh, I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't aware that that decision has been made, so that must have just come out. Uh, and my immediate reaction to that, Patty, is that's good news. We need more competition in the processing sector. You've got too many inshore harvesters, too many boats that are that are laid up on, on trip limits or fishing schedules. And the fastest way to alleviate some of that pressure is to is for the minister to do what he just did, which which is, is to announce another processing license for St. Mary's Bay. I see that as a good thing. We need more competition. Now, of course, the protests in other plant uh, workers and or owners is that we're just shuffling around the uh, the total allowable catch, which. I guess so. 
Well, that's true. But over the last two years, an increase of 46% in total allowable catch for snow crab alone is a whopping big amount of, of that particular species. So for there to have gone from seven processing plants in St. Mary's Bay to zero was just always weird to think and to say out loud. So there's a decision made by the minister, and there's a quote available at the bottom as well, talking about all the considerations that have been made and uh, given due diligence by the board and his office. Okay, there you go. So I'm sure they're thrilled in St. Mary's, not so much in other areas. Well, like I say, congratulations to the minister, to the Liberal government. I think they made the right decision here. From our perspective, from CNL's perspective, it's all about uh, safety. And again, these trip limits that crab boats are, are on this year, these fishing schedules, telling boats when to fish, when not to fish. Uh, from our perspective, that impacts special safety, uh, and, and this decision is a good one. So again, uh, kudos to the minister. Well, uh, and I'm sure I'll get calls to say the exact opposite, but so be it. That's what we do here. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, again, from our perspective, safety number one. The reason I'm calling, Patty, is because on Friday past, uh, CNL, we made a call for a joint federal-provincial inquiry into fishing vessel safety and search and rescue in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'd like to, sp- to speak about that a little more specifically and to elaborate on it. So, And, and I know that you were also off on Friday as well, so this is good, uh, a good opportunity to uh, – um, to brief you on that as well. So we said that an inquiry into fishing vessel safety and the search and rescue would investigate from four fronts, Patty. Fisheries management, Transport Canada regulations, safety at sea, search and rescue. And I'll quickly run through that, very quickly. Number one, uh, the reason for an inquiry, fisheries management. Are fisheries management decisions like weekly limits, like in the cod fishery, or trip limits, like in crab, fishing schedules, impacting vessel safety? Uh, Now, from our perspective, DFO has acknowledged in the past that such management decisions, like weekly limits, may put pressure on harvesters to fish in dangerous conditions. That's one of the things that need to be looked at. Transport Canada regulations also need to be looked at. The whole cutting off vessels so they com- come in under 3911 is ludicrous. Ludicrous. That needs, needs to be looked at it from a fishing vessel safety uh, standpoint. Safety at sea and prevention, uh, making sure that fishing vessels have the right release mechanisms to allow the inflatable rafts attached uh, to their vessels to, to release if the vessel sinks, making sure that vessels all have EPIRBs, have emergency position indicating radio beacons. Well, that's what EPIRB stands for. And, and number, the final one is search and rescue. Um, as everybody knows, Labrador does not have a dedicated uh, search and rescue uh, helicopter, um, uh, Canadian Coast Guard vessel. Um, that puts Labrador at an extremely vulnerable um, uh, position if there is an accident. And, and then also, finally, you have a standby posture for search and rescue air resources. As, as you know, Patty, this has been discussed many times. Um, it's, the, there's a 30-minute uh, wheels-up standby for the Cormont helicopters based out of Gander. That's during the day, in the evenings, and weekends. But uh, all times outside of that, including uh, weekends and vacations, not vacations, uh, holidays, uh, are up to t- up to two hours. So from those four perspectives, uh, we're calling for an inquiry, a joint federal-provincial inquiry, fisheries management, transport Canada regulations, safety at sea, search and rescue. The other thing, the, the, the final point on that, Patty, is that the Transportation Safety Board has been making, uh, has been reporting on commercial fishing deficiencies for 30 years, for three decades. It's been on their watch list for at least 12 years, and every year the same deficiencies aboard fishing vessels continue to put the lives of thousands of our inshore harvesters at risk 
and and nothing is done. So this is all coming to a head. We need an inquiry from these four perspectives to really delve into health and safety. Uh, quickly on the EPIRB. So the emergency position indicating radio beacons. Now there's going to be 70 fishing vessels in Labrador will be out will be equipped with these particular beacons, which will inevitably or inevitably, I think, save lives. So they cost about $750 each plus tax. The Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company is going to outfit all of their vessels. But what's also curious here, and this is where some of these disconnects have never made much sense to me. As per Transport Canada, larger boats already are required to have these beacons. Smaller boats, not so much. I don't know. It's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that the smaller boats and the risk associated with the smaller boat, probably a little bit more intense than it is with the larger boat, but they don't have to have these beacons. So there's reference in the story, which always, I'm always torn as to how to speak about, you know, the two lads that were lost from, say, from uh, Mary's Harbor. They are discussed specifically in this particular story. I mean, the search was called off after 10 days of searching, so knowing your last position or your ongoing position because of a beacon would make life just so much easier. And you mentioned uh, search and rescue in Labrador. As far as I understand, there's not even a fast rescue craft in Labrador, let alone a fixed wing or helicopters or anything else. So there, you know, when the federal election came and went, I thought a priority from Ivan Jones is search and rescue in Labrador. Because we've seen the stories. I mean, the inquiry was triggered basically because of the death of 14-year-old Burton Winters. So to have such a lack of resources in such a huge uh, landmass and the merciless North Atlantic off the coast of Labrador just is really a complete and utter failure. Complete and utter failure. You just said it. You, you You just hit the nail on the head. Patty... Um, the other thing that was released last week is the Transportation Safety Board investigation in the, into the 2020 sinking of the Sarah Ann in Placentia Bay. It claimed the lives of four fishermen. The biggest recommendation um, from that investigation is that any Canadian vessel that is used to commercially harvest marine resources have a current and accurate, accurate Transport Canada uh, registration. Now, that's again, that's the number one, that's the recommendation from the Sarah Ann uh, investigation. It's not CNL's investigation. That's the report from the sinking of the Sarah Ann. Uh, and what we're saying is, or the big question that comes from that is, it, uh, and, and we believe that the writing is in the wall for registrations for all vessels, but the big question is, who pays for that registration? Who pays for the associated costs? Now, you mentioned the Labrador uh, Shrimp Company and paying for the EPIRBs. That's wonderful, uh, you know, but you've got, you've got uh, registrations, you've got uh, potential inspections that are going to cost money, and these costs are going to have to be mitigated by the federal government. Again, we, the recommendation from that report is for registrations. We believe the writing is on the wall. What CNL is going to do now, what, what our job is going to be, uh, is going to, be uh, to do is to mitigate those costs. You know, if vessels don't have EPIRBs, if vessels don't have automatic release mechanisms for their life rafts, like the Sarah, and and it didn't have the release mechanism. You know, uh, you know who who pays for this? Um, if there are registrations, who pays for that? We've got to make sure, as I've said, that the costs are mitigated. I appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Have a good morning. Bye bye. You too. It's Ryan Cleary from CNL, which is S E A N L. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Vera. You're on the air. 
Hi, good morning. Um, this is Vera Banyal calling. I'm calling about the dialysis. We've been after our government to get the dialysis unit in Flowers Cove. I have made several attempts to uh, get in contact with RMHA, Krista Howell. Uh, she hasn't been returning my calls. I even uh, wrote a letter, uh, emailed a letter to her and uh, Puree and Aggie. We have no response back from that. And um, so I called her office again today. So I told her, uh, I said, leave your name and number. And I told her, I said, there is no reason for me to leave my name and number because you're just not getting back to me. And I mean, she's our MHA. She's supposed to be there for constituents, but she's not being there at all. Um, so I'm wondering why is she there trying to be a, act as a MHA when there is no response of anything? And again, I know I say this all the time, but even if you don't get the answer you want, an answer is better than silence. So, Vera, if I remember correctly, this is an issue where you're traveling from Flowers Cove to St. Anthony for dialysis, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And I think I also remember you telling me there were somewhere like 9 or 11 people in the same boat. Yes, and we have had some new ones come on board since I've been talking to you last from this area. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're not alone. There's different regions. I remember there was a big uproar of people from Placentia that were having to travel to St. John's for their dialysis. And, uh, you know, I I don't know if there's ever going to be a day where there's going to be a dialysis clinic in every part of the province, but certainly proximity is a a fair concern. What's the driving distance from Flowers Cove to St. Anthony? Uh, Well, it takes us an hour and a half. It's a little kilometers each way. Okay. So, you know, it's brutal. And I mean, like, we're not getting no answers. We had a meeting with her in March, and she told us that she would give us answers, and she made everything sound so good and whatever. I gave us a little bit of hope. But where did the hope go? The hope went on somewhere else because we ain't getting none from her. It's it's not not good at all. I mean, she's there to represent us, and if she's not going to represent us, then step down. Just plain and simple as that. Have you tried to get some sort of uh, comment or answer from Labrador Grenfell Health? Yes, I've had meetings with them too. Uh, Ether Brown, I had a meeting with her, I think it was in February. Um, I've been talking to um, clients. Uh, wait now. Um, Client relations services, probably. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, anyway, uh, I got that much on my mind now. I don't know where to start. To tell you the truth, but you know, I mean, like if she's there to represent us uh, as a MHA and our our area representative, that she should be there to take her calls and whatever. Now, two weeks ago, I got a call from her secretary telling me that she was going to call me back on Friday. That'd be three weeks now coming up Thursday, and I still have no response. And, I mean, that's not good enough. I mean, you can uh, expect, like, a day or a couple days and not getting a call back. she got more than me to deal with. I understand that. But I expect her to give me a call back 
when uh, after a couple of days. Yeah, why not? Um, Hopefully her office is uh, hearing this call and someone will put this in uh, the minister's ear to give you a shout. And I know that, yes, the cabinet ministers will have a pretty full plate. And we know that Minister Howell is dealing with the regionalization report and other matters concerning various municipalities. But you're a constituent of of hers. And so a reply would be a very helpful thing. Vera, before we take another call, was there ever kidney or, pardon me, dialysis services closer by or in your community and had been taken away or was this always the case? No, this was always the case. Okay. I always went to, to St. Anthony and um, like years ago, I know that there was uh, people from in my area who had to travel to Cornerbrook to get dialysis and like just on the end of it like it got too much for the family to be traveling or whatever and i guess it was like older people that didn't want to relocate or whatever so they just did you know gave it up right Mm -hmm. you know so i mean like uh i mean if you're there to to look after the people you should be looking after i know that things is not going to come overnight I mean, nobody expects that. But I mean, like, okay, right now is fine uh, driving besides the paddles in the road that you beat your tires up. Eh? But I mean, like, the winter is going to come again, and we're still going to have to travel back and forth to Nathan in all this brutal weather. So I mean, like, uh, you know, there's just no headway of anything. If you do get a response, even if it's not what you want to hear, give us an update, Vera, and I appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Okay, and thank you, and yes, I will give you a hot date when I do get a response, but I'm not expecting there one now anyway. <laughs> Fingers crossed, Vera. Because I went, I mean, like I went public with it, but I mean, my office is nothing. It's very frustrating for us, right? Oh, of course, I, I understand completely, and I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you very much. No problem, Vera. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Line number three. Layla, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Oh, it's Lala. Pardon me, Lala. Welcome to the show. Lala, yes. Thank you. Uh, Well, I am looking for Captain Edward King. I've heard he's collecting iceberg for uh, pure iceberg Vulcan to create uh, pure iceberg Vulcan water. I've been trying to reach him out and looking for his information on Google, but I can't really find any sources and I wanted to ask for your help. So you're looking to locate an iceberg or you're looking to go out and touch an iceberg or to get a chunk of iceberg ice? What are you trying to do? I'm sorry. I'm trying to collect some. uh, I want to help him out to collect icebergs. This is for a Japanese travel TV show and our team will be in town in the end of this uh, month. Okay, so there are a couple of uh, tour companies that go out and show tourists the icebergs. I don't know about bringing you physically to one so that someone can get on it or cut a chunk of ice off of it, but I tell you what, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Edward King, Captain Edward King, he seems like he's specifically working for iceberg collecting. Okay. But that's the only information that I can find on a website on Google. I can't find any uh, way to reach me out. 
Now, I, I do know he's a so-called iceberg hunter, is uh, Captain yeah. Keen. Now, yeah. contact information, I don't really know where. I would try to get you in touch with him directly. But I tell you what, yeah. you leave it with me. And uh, Lala, you send me an email. I'll try to find uh, a personal contact info for Ed Keen. Mm -hmm. And if I do, I'll ship it off to you. No problem. That's perfect. So my email address is a really simple one. It's just openline at vocm.com. So you drop me a note. I will actively see if I can find you some contact info. Great. Thank you very much for your help. You're, you're welcome. So uh, when are you coming again? Uh, we, are, we will be in town on May 27th and 28th. And what's bringing you here, specifically icebergs? Yes. Interesting. Uh, Japanese travel show. Fantastic stuff. Hopefully it results in more and more Japanese tourists making their way to this province. I know by the Canadian Rocky Mountains has been a very popular destination for Japanese tourists over the years. Hopefully we can make Newfoundland and Labrador their next option. Yes, exactly. Nice to have you on. I'll see what I can find out for you. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Lala. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. There you go, Japanese travel show. I think we'd be surprised just how frequent other countries. I mean, remember, there was a big write-up in the New York Times there a couple of years ago, and that had to have an appreciable impact. So a Japanese tourist show. Anybody know how to get in touch with Captain Edward Keane? If you do, send me a note so I can reply to Lala and see if we can't get her travel show off to see an iceberg up close and personal. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic, up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member of the House of Assembly for St. John Center. He's also the interim leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, sir. I remember seeing on the uh, government's website uh, indicating the members of the House that even under your bio describes yourself as the leader of the third party. I would have thought that would irritate members of the NDP as opposed to, say, I'm interim leader of the NDP. Which is it? <laughs> I'm good with interim leader, and I'm, I'm, even, I'm even more comfortable with MHA. <laughs> Very well. Welcome to the show, Jim. <laughs> so I'm good with that. Uh, no, I, I was listening to your intro today. It did touch on, uh, certainly on, uh, like, the trans regional transportation, uh, but cost of living, uh, that's an issue that, uh, that's been debated, and I, I've been thinking a lot about that as I listened to the debate in the House, and uh, thinking about the call that I made to you, I think, back in the December, when the uh, when the people um, when I was talking about the people in my district who were at that time were having struggling to put food on the table, and we had ended up with the, not one but two people who uh, who came forward with food hampers to help these individuals out, and. I'm thinking, you know, um, uh, gas prices have just uh, have, have thrown it into sharper relief in many ways, uh, but there needs to be, a, I, I, in many ways, longer-term, medium, uh, short-term solutions. Yes, but we've got we've got bigger problems we've got to address. Um, and at that time, I think I might have been speaking to you about the re uh, rationale for getting the uh, guaranteed basic income committee on the go to address the issue of uh, of. Um, uh, of poverty and, and uh, food insecurity and, uh, and and the lack of income, but last week um, when I was, as we were sitting in the house, leading and listening to that, we did approach uh, you know uh, the minister of finance and said, look, you know um, there. Uh, the, the carbon tax, if we're going to battle climate change, has got to be a, a, it's something we've got to tackle. Uh, but at the same time, 
there's got to be something there to a uh, to help people out and we did put forward a, a number of proposals that we sent in writing to the minister at that time um and i'll just touch on them briefly if you're if you're up for that let's go so one of the things that we said look you're going to have to increase minimum wage from 13.20 up to 15 dollars an hour and you're going to, have to do that quickly and for small businesses uh that might uh, the shock we said right now they're currently paying a three percent corporate tax on businesses that earn less than five hundred thousand dollars annual so if you if there's a rebate or eliminate for them uh, that they uh, can be passed on to their employees we, we estimate that they would put at least another three thousand seven hundred and forty four dollars roughly into their pockets based on a 40-hour week we also said right now not everyone drives uh and uh, uh and and not everyone heats their home with oil but uh, maybe there's a possibility of looking at over the next three months or until we get to fall a short term looking at a, a, a rebate on electricity bills also the people who I a lot of the people who come to my office uh, who ca- called my office for help they're on income support and they're making they're they're even in worse shape right now so we said maybe increasing the uh, the income the threshold for income support to uh, individuals and families up to twenty five thousand and look at inst- making sure that um, the other the fourth one is restoring drug card uh, the drug card coverage for income recipients who decide to go follow post secondary education the other part too Patty I it really comes down to uh like not there there are people in my district and and outside who do not own a car and one of the things that's very clear to them they want to see an improved uh reach uh, public transit and i think regional transit system um i i i know you've been in other parts of the country i and and you know how efficient it is you can you can live in a lot of places without having to own a car the the transit system is so um is so effective. I think that's where we need to start to go as well. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, th- and that and that's an employment opportunity. That's building. That's the main. Uh, that's increasing infrastructure. That's uh, it, it's in, uh, providing more jobs. But to me, uh, those are just some of the uh, some of the uh, the measures that I think we need to take short term, but also into the long term if we're going to resolve some of these issues. Yeah, on the public transportation issue, uh, there is an attitude thing about Metro bus here. You know, people would very quickly call it the loser cruiser versus if I get on the bus in Toronto, I might be sitting alongside someone with a $5,000 suit. Some of that is driven by just how exorbitantly expensive it is to park in some of these major cities and the congestion in some of these major cities, which influences people to ride the bus or take the LRT or the subway more often than we would around here. But how we means test some short medium long-term relief for folks who are struggling mightily with cost of living is a very tricky piece of business i don't know where where we start with it but i know that the exact same time or concurrently we should be talking about how and why people are in that predicament who they are where they are even if we just expand on the social determinants of health from health accord and try to bring that over to this cost of living issue i think we can strike a bunch of birds with the exact same approach well i know myself i've started over the last few months i actually just before the COVID struck i was actually starting to use the bus so i said i'm going to put my money where my mouth is and walk it and and walk the talk so uh, i actually have been uh, uh, using it uh, a lot more and you're right 
there is a stigma that that's attached to it, and uh, and and maybe there is a little bit of a public education. But the fact is, too, a lot of people they w- don't own a car, and uh, and they depend on some sort of uh, it's other it's other people to transport them. That also to you to your whole notion of social determinants of health. If you can access your doctor's appointment effectively and cheaply, uh, it's an, uh, like to get to even to get to a, a food bank for that matter, or to get to your grocery shopping. The fact is, we uh, we've done nothing in many ways to encourage public trans- uh, transit and put the other supports in place for people. But uh, I, I guess if I had to look at it, there's going to have to be, we're going to sit down and do some serious planning as to how we uh, how we address some of these issues. Uh, and and I, and I understand the uh, the desire let's have a, um, a rebate on, on gas taxes. Uh, that's short term. Uh, that 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 might be effective right now, but it's still not uh, addressing the larger issue that are fa- that's facing a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Yeah, it's 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 been brewing for quite a long time, and just like everything else that we see in touch, the pandemic has really shone a very bright light yeah. on some of these issues, and the folks that were struggling three years ago, I don't know how they're cutting it these days. Because even folks in the whatever the middle class actually is, and I don't know how people evaluate who's the middle class or not, but that group of people is now feeling a pinch like they hadn't prior. So this is, if there was 50,000 people that absolutely on a means test needed some support three years ago, it's 150 now. And the lady I was I, I called about uh, uh, mentioned back in December who was crying over the whole notion of uh, what she bought for a hundred dollars. It's gotten a lot worse for her. We knew food, we knew food prices were going to be shooting up according to the Canada's food price uh, report. Uh, it's gone up more here, and uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, you know the fact is they're even they're even in worse condition. So uh, I, I, as I've said, it comes down to uh, it, to the income piece, and uh, you know there are a lot of seniors out there who are as well who are watching uh, who are fixed incomes but at some point uh, I think when we look at it uh, whatever measures we short term we bring, uh, bring in let's make sure that they have they have the, uh, the, the uh, have the maximum impact uh, and so that for that it covers those who are not necessarily drivers um, and, and not necessarily those who heat their home play, uh, place of home but you know maybe there's a uh, short-term relief but uh, still, we've got to address the, uh, the like the, when it comes to uh, long-term people. For example, who are working at minimum wage, uh, you know, at, at some point when when this is done, they're still going to be at minimum wage. They still need to have a livable income, and uh, that that's hence was one of the one of our suggestions. And you can make it and you can make it affordable. We believe too for uh, for small businesses that uh, uh, that that may that. Uh, that may not it may not have the capacity give them the break have it pass on to the employees um, but anyway those are just some of the ideas that we had put forward we haven't heard anything back but uh, certainly uh, we are committed to as well uh, to uh, having measures put in place to help people in the short term but also the long term uh, I think there's a lot of dovetails with health accord we're anticipating yeah. the blueprint for implementation of the 57 recommendations we were told in and around the middle of this month I haven't seen it in any idea on your side when we're going to anticipate that blueprint that's a good question because that seems to be the uh, the the holdout um uh, with uh, with regards to that, I mean, we're we're looking for the details. We do we have heard that there's some attempt to uh, to look at uh, some uh, at a committee to look at uh, guaranteed basic incomes, which goes to the uh, uh, the uh, to the health court about uh, one of the recommendations it does make. One of the things we've been calling for, um, but 
when you look at social determinants of health, I, Patty, I may have been telling you uh, the, the, uh, there was a study that was done in BC that raising the bottom income level of the bottom 20% can save up to 6.7% on uh, on healthcare costs. So it's 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 not a it's not a case of where we're going to get the money. It, the fact is that it's an investment that's going to pay off. But we haven't heard uh, anything along those lines yet ourselves. I will uh, follow up. Of course, I'm really I put a lot of credence in behind this particular yeah. piece of work, and I think if we get a better understanding about how it's going to be implemented, we can alleviate some of the concerns. Some people see it as a uh, doing away with healthcare delivery in one region or another. When I'm not so sure that's what it is. So I'd like to get a look at that blueprint because that'll be the be all and end all for sure no and i agree with you and i think there's a like it's ambitious we uh, we uh, we've been uh, uh, getting updates on the report throughout and we, i personally have a lot of hope in this uh but I, it's going to, <laughs> it's going to require a commitment uh it's uh if you look at the report and i know you have uh it, it's not a short-term fix no. uh, but it's gonna it's gonna be uh, come down to an investment more um and it's more importantly, it's where we need to go. Uh, and that, and the other part of it is to, uh, 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 one of the other things we put forward is to at least look at, start planning for a transition to a greener economy uh, and the jobs that will come with that. And I think all in all, I, I you know, that's, it. I, I guess my point of view as a, as a teacher too, it's about, uh, you're always thinking about the uh, the short term medium and the end, and the end of the year goal. So it comes down to where are we going in the future? To me, the uh, the health court is, is a is a huge piece of this, uh, but uh, we can't we can't just stop. I guess what I'm going to circle back to, it just can't begin and end with um, relief at the gas pumps. It's got to go beyond that because there are a lot more people out there who are who are, are going to um, that need the problem. That problem has to be addressed in a, in a much more uh, holistic and, and planned uh, planned approach. Appreciate the time this morning, Jim. Thank you very much, Patty. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. Jim Din, NDP member for St. John Center and the interim leader of the party. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Betty. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Good morning, Betty. Morning to you. Um, I uh, have uh, a phone problem. Like, I don't know where they're getting the money that they're saying that I owe. I never have. I never have uh, arrears. Because where to take it out of my bank account? I got one there for a hundred and fifty-two, a hundred and fifty-one dollars and fifty cents, and then I got another one there for uh, March the fifteenth, two thousand twenty-two, eighty-six dollars. April two thousand twenty-two. This is the one is two hundred and fifty-one dollars. And fifty cents, and they're saying that I got, um, I got uh, long distance calls, which is only me in the house, and the phone calls that are on my receipt, I don't even know where they're to. So when you call Bell, they tell you what? Well, I call them, and I. I told them that I, I don't even know the name of these places. I don't know where they're to. And how come I owe 
$251.50? Excellent question. I have no idea. Uh, I had a problem with my bill not so long ago, and it took me forever and a day jumping through every single hoop they could throw in front of me to get some answers. And at the end of it all, I, I guess I wore them out because there was a charge on there made absolutely no sense, and they took it off. So I guess this is a matter of fighting the good fight. I'm fighting losing battle. Yeah, I feel it. And like I said, this, you know, this is not small money, you know. I'm only a widow and I'm a small pension. Like, I can do more with that $251 than to give it to them. And sure. like, where I have it come out of my bank account, it seems like, oh, I'll just go to our bank account and take that out. She owes it, but I don't. I never had, even when I had the internet and I had to get it taken out, and I got the smallest package that uh, I say that anyone ever got, because that's all I could afford. Mm -hmm. But I'm not pleased with this $251.50. I don't imagine you are. There's a couple of places that you can... uh submit a formal complaint about uh, telecom companies, billing and otherwise? I don't know if you want to want uh, some contact info. Yes, because this $251, I can do a lot with it. Like food-wise and trying to live half-decent. 100%. I can give you a telephone number if you... Let's see if I can get it here. I don't mind paying for what I... Got, oh no! But I, I'm not paying for something that I haven't got. I, I'm with you. So, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? I can give you yes, contact information for this particular uh, organization that takes these types of complaints about billing, telecom services, TV services, and otherwise. So, it's one eight eight eight. Okay. Two two one. Two two one. One six eight seven. One six eight seven. That's right. Okay. Thank this, you, Teddy. You're welcome. This is the Commission for Complaints for Telecom and Television Services. Great. Okay. Good thanks luck. for your help. You're welcome, Betty. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going and say good morning to the Liberal member of the House of Assembly, elected in Fogo Island, Cape Friels. He's the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. As Derek Bragg. Minister Bragg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to take your call. So a couple of big announcements coming from your office today. One for Dandy Dan's uh, Seafood Shop. I know that's not the actual legitimate or uh, specific name. Let me, I got it right here in front of me. Dandy Dan's Fish Market Limited out in Argentia. And I guess the big one that got an awful lot of public attention was the St. Mary's Bay Fisheries Incorporated. And you've given them approval to purchase uh, 2.5 million pounds in round weight form of snow crab in particular. He goes on to say in a quote from you that you weighed all the considerations I met with the Fish Processing Licensing Board to discuss the recommendations. Last week, there was some mention that you had limited information, I believe, you know, two or three pages uh, concerning the recommendation coming from the board. What happened between now and then for the final approval? So I sat with the board uh, late last week, and uh, we had a, a discussion. So I wanted some more details on where they came up with their recommendation. And I thank the board for the work they did because they did, basically did the heavy lifting for me on this. They did, took all the uh, applications. They reviewed the applications, and they discussed them. They, they spent two days. I think they were, if my notes are correct, on the April 12th to the 14th. They met and, and, and 
and uh, give me a decision. I think it was about four or five days later. I've been dealing with that and and, and rolling around in my mind and working it through and talking to staff and and just trying to come to a, I guess, to an, a, a decision where a final recommendation would land and looking at the crab fishery in general and seeing where we need to be. And so this morning we made, we made our announcement of the final recommendations. I think we find ourselves in a good place. Uh, some people are going to be at, unhappy because we uh, opened up another fish plant in the province. To those people, like we have 28 million pounds of extra crab came into the system this year. We're looking at 3.5 of that going into two fish plants. One is for Dandy Dan, the other one's for St. Mary's. Overall, it shouldn't be any drastic effect to any protector plant or all protector plants together. Uh, it gives us uh, more players in the field, but it also gives us a feel of how a new entrants uh, are going to work out and how they're going to compete in this industry. What was involved in some of the recommendations from the licensing board regarding, say, concentration or regional issues? Give us some details as what led you to this final approval. So the final approval, I guess, and, and, and some of the reasons is like, for one of the ones and someone's going to be really upset that I, that I reject it, would be there's seven fish plants in a general area of a plant that's, that's looking for an application. So there's enough activity, there's enough processing, there's enough competition for workers in that area right now that doesn't warrant putting another plant there. For St. Mary's is in a place where people at work, the plant went out of business, there's still people available to work there. So there's a demographic of people that's, that I guess are, are, are looking for work and have been dependent over the years on different programs throughout the province. So this gives some vital, some vital employment to the area. And as we all know, crab gets trucked. So we can say adjacency is very important, but at the end of the day, crab gets trucked all over this island and all throughout Labrador where it needs to be. So, you know, you got to look at the competition. Uh, we're opening up the, I know Dandy Danny Protector would have absolutely no one, and, and St. Mary's would presumably have no fishermen at this point or fisher people. They have to go out, they have to find people. It's, 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 it's their, their place now to prove to us that this can be done and this, this is what we need to be. So I'm comfortable with the decision, to be honest with you, Patty. I mean, it took me a long time to reach this decision. Many people called me over the last little while. A lot of times, I mean, I've, I was at a listening ear to everyone, but I look at the industry overall. Uh, Department of Fisheries are saying for the next two to four years. Well, if you look at it, this is one of those two first two years. So the next, say, up to three years, and then we're looking to see a less favorable conditions for the future of the crab. So we can't have overcapacity. Uh, last year, we went out without any extra fish plants at all, and we didn't see any issue at the end of the day that all crab was bought in. 100% of the crab was, was what the quota was caught last year and processed. Uh, we're up 28 million this year, and like I said, a 3.5 out of that shouldn't make much of a difference to any plant in particular. Well, I'm sure they would argue that 3.5 million pounds is, you know, X number of days or hours or weeks for their plant workers. Uh, quickly, before we run out of time, part of your responsibility in your portfolios for the portfolios for the Multi-Material Stewardship Board. The province has now announced that they are going to be recycling tires here in the province. First, for the past 10 years, shipping them off to the province of Quebec. Contract awards to Halifax C&D Recycling. I didn't even know that this was ongoing and that there was an RFP in place. Walk us through the process and how many respondents did we have? So, Patty, 
I was the minister responsible for that when I was with Municipal Affairs and Environment, but that would be Bernie Davis now as the minister responsible. Oh, it's not inside your portfolio. Okay, my apologies. Oh, thankfully, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll be, I can wave that question and pass that question out to, to Minister Davis. But uh, I, I'd take any question you might have on the fishery at this point. Well, there's a couple of things. So there's, I mean, I, I know it's not necessarily your responsibility, but any fisheries-related matter, and this one about safety. We know that the report came out last week regarding the the, uh, the sinking of the Sarah Ann and the four lives lost, and we know the issue up in uh, Mary, or Permi Mary's Harbor last year. And this is about the beacons, the emergency responder beacons that are now going to be put in place. So the, technically, the emergency position indicating radio beacons and the system associated with it. Private companies are taking upon themselves so in this case, Labrador Fisherman's Union Shrimp Company is going to fit all of their vessels with it. going to cost them some $50,000. Large vessels are mandated by Transport Canada. Smaller vessels are not. So I know you'll have to deal with the federal minister, Minister Murray, on these types of fronts. But safety being paramount, and these sad stories, some of them could be avoided. Where does your department come down on, you know, talking about these particular safety measures? This is very important, but first of all, first and foremost, Patty, my heart goes out to all the family. Over the course of my life as a volunteer firefighter, I was on two recoveries where fishermen lost their lives, and it's not something you ever want to be a part of. So any loss of life is too much, and anything we can do promotes safety. And I think to, to find a little, uh, I don't know if it's called EPERS or whatever they are, that go on a suit, I think that's that's something that should be very important. We're putting AEDs on fishing vegetables now for people in case there may be an heart attack or something. I mean, safety should be first and foremost. We started off with the, with the life jacket, but I think anything that can get a faster response for the uh, for the military when they come out in their helicopter, I think is vitally important. So I will have a conversation with the minister, and I actually look within our department if there's anything we could do to help out. Uh, depending on the price, I think industry, if if AW needs to weigh in on this, as well as the ASP, because this is something we all need to take serious. Safety has to be number one at all times, Patty. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. This is Minister of For Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, Derek Bragg. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Patricia, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I just wanted to let your listeners know that in, re in regards to the high cost of oil, my bill came last week. He came and done a delivery, which was an outrageous price. So I contacted the company today. And they were able to give me back a rebate, like 100 liters at today's cost. So other people need to be aware that if they contact their uh, supplier, they may be able to get some reduction on their cost. Based on what? I mean, that's great, and I'm, I'm pleased for you. But how did they tell you that there was a rebate coming your way? Just what are the circumstances? Well... I, uh, I have an automatic fill-up on my, on my tank here, and they came last Tuesday, and they filled it up. And then I heard on, on your show, actually, about the cost going up like 40 or 36 cents, or it went down the next day or so. Mm -hmm. So I called up my company today, and I said, it's not acceptable. I said, I want uh, some kind of satisfaction, or I told them I'm going to look for a different supplier. So they went to the higher-up authorities and the lady I was speaking to, and she came back, and first she said, um, they will give you um, 50 liters at today's cost. 
as a credit on my account. And um, and I thought about it, and I said, no. I said, there was a 36-cent difference the next day, and I don't feel that's appropriate in terms of, you know, I'm a loyal customer and this type of thing. And she went back, and she was back with 100 liters at today's cost, which is $1.60 or something like that per liter, and they credited my account. You drive a hard bargain, Patricia. Yeah, but, you know, people need to look, not just accept things. Uh, they could go and talk to their suppliers. You know, these people want to keep you as a customer as well. So sometimes you have nothing to lose by, by doing it. A hundred percent. And, you know, you're, you're spot on when you say it's difficult enough to get a customer, but the real competitive issue is keeping that customer because that's where, you know, predictable profitability got chimes in here. So I would imagine you've now provoked... Uh, almost everyone listening to this show to make the same call that you made, Patricia, and to stand your ground so you can get well, a refund based on what you consider to be the fairness. Patty, you know, that, that's my point here. You know, I did that and I got my satisfaction to a degree, and other people may not even consider doing that. They need to do it. No one's going to do it for you. You know, keeping an eye on the bills is, you know, sometimes maybe it's just people have busy lifestyles or they just take for granted that the billing is accurate. But having a very close look at a bill for whatever comes in your mailbox or your email inbox or your mailbox is worthwhile doing. And, you know, same thing as keeping an eye on the till when you're going through the checkout at the grocery store. All of these things because it adds up after a while. So, Patricia, you have given a great idea to a lot of people today, and I'm sure the phones will be hopping at the various oil companies well you know i think they ought to and i i just went back and checked my last couple of times they came and filled up and i saw such a tremendous difference in the price and i said god i can't keep on i mean i'm able to pay that but other people are you know going between that and buying their groceries kind of thing you know <laughs> i really appreciate it. you've had the final word this morning patricia thank you for your time Okay, and thank you, Patty. You're doing a great job. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, there you go. You never know. And as she points out, you got nothing to lose. You know, maybe a lot to gain. All right, good show to kick off the week here, the four-day week that it is. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You are all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.